you join me in thanking these guys for leading us in worship? And on top of all of that, they wouldn't tell you this, they had to scramble this week. We had students who were supposed to be leading that went into quarantine, that were out of quarantine. And it's just so beautiful to have such an incredibly deep bench of talent um, at Dort University where people can just simply jump in and be able to do um, what our worship leaders here do. So thank you, all of them. Well, welcome to all of you. This is always one of the funnest times of the entire year. Probably have four generations of Defender Nation in the house right now. And my favorite part, and a part that will always be part of Dort University, is we kick off Defender Days by gathering together and laying down our first priority, the most important common denominator between any one of us here, regardless of the 28 countries that our student body comes from, or the many, many dozens of different denominations, is we all claim Christ. We all get to come back together here before him and claim that he reigns in this place and he shapes our identity and he calls us on mission and empowers us to do it in his world. Praise be to God. Will you join me in prayer? Lord God, this is your place. Our hearts are yours. Our hands are yours. Our minds are yours. We are trying to love you with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. For you are worthy of it all. Lord, we thank you for this place as we get to celebrate this weekend your faithfulness. What you have done and what you continue to do. That no matter what happens in a world around us, that you are constant and you are sure. You, through the power of your spirit, give your people a peace that can surpass our own circumstances. For all of these things, your faithfulness to us. From generation to generation. Father, we say thank you. And so we come back again to your words now and ask that you just keep shaping us as you always have, as you always will, and have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever been confused enough to wonder if you're going like through some sort of identity crisis? There are like certain particular times in life where you look back and you really realize that you really could have gone a lot of different ways. Like there was a lot up for grabs. Junior high years were highly impressionable. Often we go through puberty and we feel like we're in the middle of a new identity crisis. High school is like one extended four-year identity crisis and college often feels like one extended four-year identity crisis, trying to figure out who am I, where am I going in this world, what does God want me to be, who did he create me to be, and we kind of just, I kept thinking that there would one day be a line where I would cross and be like, okay, well now I know who I am. And at 45, I, I still wonder what I'm going to be when I grow up. I still wonder if I'll grow up. And this perpetual identity crisis just continues to dominate so much and so many voices speaking into our lives and from culture and the world around us want a piece of our identity. And so it's so important as God's people to always come back together. I always go back to those passages in the Old Testament where the book of the law is found and they get together and all they do is just read it over God's people again. And the covenant renewal ceremony. Pastor Travis Ellis at my church was preaching on this just the other week and he said, um, 
coming back before scripture and having devotional practices and being in church on Sunday in my life is sort of like what I had for supper last Tuesday. I don't remember exactly what it was, but I'm super thankful the calories are in my body and somehow I'm pulling from them. There's a certain spiritual caloric intake we get from our prayer and from scripture reading and our Sunday participation. And these are the practices of God's people because we need to be reminded again and again and again about who we are and whose we are. So that we don't get lost and start defining ourselves by a career goal that we're chasing after or what somebody on some newscast says about what's going on in the world as if that was the most dominant thing. Because the most common denominator here in all of us is how we stand level before the cross. For all of us. Because the identity crisis continues. Normally in here I've got practices and exercises for students, but if you can read this, this is like for all of us middle-aged people. So start up in the top left corner. This is sort of a flow chart for midlife crises. Just kind of follow it on through. when I thought I was supposed to figure out who I am, culture tells me now I'm supposed to have a midlife crisis. How do you manage that? Cultures all around the world have learned that we need to have truth spoken over us again and again. There's this notion of Ubuntu all across African cultures. In fact, all four corners of the continent in some way have some version of this. It's sort of longer translated as a person is a person because of or through others. And in certain tribes in Africa, when somebody has done something so egregious and so wrong, what they do is they call them back and they put them in the center of the community. And instead of casting stones on them or punishing them or shaming them, they all speak over them the most beautiful things that they remember about their life. If you ever saw the movie Blood Diamond, that's what's taking place when Solomon Vandy's son is taken captive. And then he's kind of brainwashed and he's in like this Stockholm syndrome, kind of in love with his captors as a child soldier, high on drugs. Punishing and killing his own people and his father looks him in the eye and says, you, you are, and he names him and he says, and the cows at home, they call for you. And your mother is in the kitchen and she's, and he's just speaking truth. He's truth washing the lies back off of him that he would become his son again. Scripture does this for us. It truth washes us. It comes back. And so much of the book of Galatians that we've been walking through this semester is a process of that. It's Paul's truth washing the people. New ideas have come in telling them that they need to revert back to some sort of legalism. And Paul's truth washing them in what the Spirit is supposed to do and be in their lives. And so after an early introduction and his calling them out as foolish Galatians for listening to these voices and even a confrontation with Peter, we now pick up the story in Galatians chapter 3, verse 23. Paul says, Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. And so the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves 
with Christ. And there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, even though he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery, under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. When this passage starts off, this is the beginning, before the coming of this faith, um, there's a, a temporal element to understanding the relationship for Paul between the law and what comes next in terms of the life in the Spirit. And listen to the way that he describes this period of life for us. Look closely at the words, held in custody under the law, locked up. In the book of Galatians, Paul is addressing, ironically, the slippery slope of legalism, turning what's supposed to be a relationship of freedom into a confining set of do's and don'ts. And his analogy for returning back to that instead of the life and freedom that's promised in the Spirit is actually that of a prison. He's not exactly painting an inviting picture for the path that they're walking. See, the design of the law was then to confine and to restrict bad behavior. Laws seek to create obedience, which in and of themselves is not bad, but trying to get forward in the Christian life merely by observing the law is like trying to get to space by jumping on a trampoline. It's the wrong tool for the job. And so his modern paraphrase here is that of like a nanny or a babysitter, um, a guardian. Because Paul says the Spirit was given for the sake of freedom. Now, in trying to understand the relationship between the law of all that exists in the Old Testament and how we're told to live in Christ in the New Testament and where Paul's going, where he's going to talk about the Spirit and, and the fruit that the Spirit wants to bring about in our lives and how we're called to walk in step with the Spirit now, he's helping us navigate the relationship, which I think so often we struggle with as Christians, between what seems like this contradiction between a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New, or a God of wrath and a God of mercy. And... In 10 years, I can't believe how many pastoral care visits we've had in my office as students have asked the right questions trying to navigate this. How do I reconcile um, this seeming identity crisis that maybe God himself appears to have in Scripture? And trying to figure that out. And Paul's so helpful in the book of Galatians in explaining this relationship to us. N.T. Wright, as he's talking about this passage and the way that Paul's explaining it all, he talks about the law being good, but that it was just incomplete. Because he said it was subject to anthropological and temporal limitations. Anthropological because it's being worked out in very broken vessels. And so it can't bring about righteousness in and of itself. But also temporal. It was only set in place to be there for a certain particular period of time until until 
until the faith that was to come would be revealed, until Christ came that we might be justified by the faith. But now that this faith has come, we are no longer under the authority of the same guardian. Our custody has been given to something different. So in Christ, you are all children of God. One of the single most powerful demonstration of the Spirit's presence in the New Testament is unity. You'll know that God is in the house when God's people are working together in the same direction. This is a great dashboard indicator, I think, for the health inside of our own families or inside of our own churches. Unity is not supposed to be a man-made construction where we just all make certain concessions to one another in order that we can all get along. It is a gift that God wants to cultivate within his people that throughout his brilliant creative ability of diversity allows us to experience a unity because our common denominator is greater than any numerator you would ever put above that. And that's what God wants to create in his people, that sense of unity. This verse that comes next has often been referred to theologically as the Magna Carta of Humanity. It's the vision that gets cast of what God's people can and will be united in the only common denominator that matters in the end. And look at the categories that he breaks through. Racial, sociopolitical, sexual. Have there been three categories that have divided God's people or humanity more over time than those three? Where we have taken the beautiful diversity of God and instead used it to rank and classify value and devalue people. Where instead of the first thing we see when we see somebody is the image of God within them, instead we see them by a label. We like to put people in neat categorical boxes. Reducing the complexity of the brilliance of God. Insulting him in the process. And his creative work. And so part of the work of God's people, as Paul's envisioning this here for them, is that they would be the people who would break down these things because the gift of unity being given to them is a new common denominator that transcends anything that any broken human has ever used to make one person worth less than somebody else. You've probably seen this before, right? First century Jewish morning prayers. A part that was in it, this is already popular in the first century, being used by many Jews, is you'd wake up in the morning, and a Jewish man prays, Blessed is he that he did not make me a Gentile. Blessed be he that he did not make me a slave. Blessed be he that he did not make me a woman. Listen to the brilliance of Paul and how he's constructing this argument back, being like, you don't get to say that anymore. It's not true. And he's not just talking to the Jews here, right? Because there's this difference between the Judaizers and circumcision and those who want to focus on the law versus the Greeks. But what I, often, what I never knew before about this passage is how common this same expression of gratitude existed in Greek culture dating all the way back already to Socrates. Diogenes records it that this, the statement of gratitude taught by Thales and Socrates, that I was born a human being and not a beast, next a man and not a woman, Thirdly, a Greek and not a barbarian. Paul brilliantly is critiquing both cultural assumptions about what ranks and classifies the value of a human being. 
He's taking a shot at everybody here. Because he has to get them all to the place where they realize that they're level before the cross. Neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, all the greatest differences that the voices of the world have said determine someone's place in society or in their own home are obliterated at the cross. Next month across this country, there will be families all over who maybe for the first time will not gather in the same way at a Thanksgiving dinner table. Who say that they claim a common denominator in Jesus Christ, but because of arguments that they've had about vaccines or masks or critical race theory or LGBTQ issues or political differences or theological differences, will not gather at the same table and will not eat the same food and will not share the same place in comfort with one another because we have replaced our biggest common denominator no longer with Jesus, but with an allegiance bigger than that. I have no other explanation for why that would happen. Tell me whether or not this does not grieve the heart of God. His son died, so all of those differences between us would not be differences anymore. And just like the foolish Galatians that Paul's calling out, as foolish Americans, we've done the same thing again. We've just swapped out the words. We need a reclamation of heart. We can't agree on being thankful together because we differ on these smaller things. We have no right to take this place. We have no right to set those differences up. It's like me walking up to Bruce Arians and being like, I know that your coach at Tampa Bay Bucks, Tom Brady, is all right, but I think I can take this. I mean, we're the same age, right? I mean, it's, we're virtually identical. And Bruce would probably say, well, did you play any high school football? I'm, well, no. I, how about in college? Well, no. You stay in shape? Yeah, no, not really. <laughs> like, what a ridiculous thing to ask something that I've no like... I haven't done any of the work beforehand, so we right now are having arguments and dictating our positions and our identities over small things when we haven't done the big stuff first. And the reason why this is so important in the book of Galatians is where Paul is driving at. You are all children of God. You are all one in Christ. Is Jesus not a big enough common denominator for you? And if he isn't, then your God is too small. Why would you reduce the work of the cross? Why would you make it less than everything that God designed it to be? Why would you be a Christian in name and not enjoy the full benefits of everything that Jesus died to provide for you? And for him at the end of the day, he has a very clear picture of what the greatest benefit of all of that is. Adoption to sonship place and belonging within a family, a seat at the table. And I love how he does it in this text, because if you listen to the language really carefully, he's not talking about the Gentiles being adopted into a family. He talks both to Jews and Gentiles about being adopted in, because it is faith that makes you belong in this. 
My wife and I are adoptive parents. And so, in some ways, I've had an extra way of looking at this analogy in Scripture. And people have been so obtuse sometimes in the questions they've asked about adoption. I had a friend pull me aside when we were in the process and says, you know that if you adopt a kid, you never know what you're going to get, right? Because at a biological birth, I mean, you have full control over everything. <laughs> or I'll show them a family picture, and I've heard this one too. Do you have any of your own kids? In my will, there's no differentiation between the kids who were adopted and those who were born biologically. Do you have your own kids? Oh, this is my favorite one. Which ones are your real kids? I always take them and put them forward and be like, touch them, they're real. You can feel like they're, they have mass. So understand how this plays out in this passage. Adoption to sonship is a place of the same standing in God's will, where Jesus selflessly takes the inheritance of the riches of the kingdom of heaven and then raises us up to the similar standing. That you are loved by the Father as much as the Father loves the Son. God loves you as much as he loves Jesus. And your place in that family is not up for grabs, so let's call out the lies around us for what they are, come back before God's word and understand that as his people, we have something so much greater than whatever differences the world says need to split us all apart right now. J.I. Packer, one of my professors in seminary, said it like this in his famous book, Knowing God. Justification, by which we mean God's forgiveness of the past, together with his acceptance for the future, is the primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel. But this is not to say that justification is the highest blessing of the gospel. Adoption is higher because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. So let's back this up a little bit. Listen to the Trinitarian language already here in Galatians. Because you are his sons, God sent his spirit, the spirit of his son, all three persons of the Trinity in the same, this perfect relationship at the center of all things, the theory of everything into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So the center of everything is this perfect relationship, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, dwelling together in perfect unity. And the invitation of Scripture is to come and be part of that family. Come and be part of the perfect relationship. You see, you cannot fully enter into communion, the communion of a perfect relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit while bringing divisions into it. This is why unity is talked about as such an important manifestation of the Spirit in the New Testament. Because I can't bring my broken, unresolved, angry garbage where I'm demeaning other people and then claim to want to enter into a perfect relationship where that does not exist between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God wants to refine and purify those things out of me. Because there's a perfect relationship at the center of it all. Not a perfect set of rules, not a perfect set of doctrines. A perfect relationship. And so the other things are all important along the way. But they're not the end game. At the end, the center of all things is the relationship between the Trinity. 
And so we've talked about this theme all semester in the book of Galatians, this notion of presence over performance. That the greatest calling is to simply be in and with and experience the triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that Spirit is so key into making that relationship closer. It is the catalyst that makes it happen in our lives. That's why Jesus was so excited for it. That's why he called it power. That's why he said, wait in Jerusalem until my Father gives you the gift. Like, that's what it'll do. And as a result, at the end, this is what happens. You are no longer a slave. And listen to Paul's process now of truth-washing. You are no longer a slave. You are God's child. Created. Called. Saved. Redeemed. Anointed. Set apart. Empowered. A royal priesthood. A holy nation, Defender Nation. <laughs> and he's madly in love with you. And he wants to redeem the world through you. He wants to take everything that Jesus has earned and offer it back to God's people. That you would share the same standing before the Father that Jesus enjoys. And the Spirit's job is to keep reminding us of that. This is who you are. This is who you are. Do not be disrupted by an identity crisis, no matter how loud the voices of culture or politics or infighting are. Know who you are. The beloved child of God who he's refining into a masterpiece. He's so in love with. He's not going to lay down his life for you. He already did. That is so sweet. That's... That's who you are. Know it in the core of your being. Will you stand, please? I think this would be appropriate. Doc's out? Yeah. All right. Jeremy, help me out, because this is going to be horrible if I start it. Children of God, let no lies ever stick to you. You have been washed, and let the truth keep washing you. You are God's children. You are sent. You are on mission. You are beloved. You are Christ's people. One in unity. Have a beautiful day and a great weekend celebrating God's work. Amen.